Seated. <clears throat> Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you now to use this time uh, meditating on your word to better prepare our hearts to sit at this banquet set before us, this remembrance of Christ's body and blood shed for us. Bless us, Lord, as only you can, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often said that we do not appreciate the value of what we have until we're suddenly deprived of it. That's often true of family and friends and jobs and possessions and various sorts of freedoms and privileges that we have. This undervaluing of others, of things, and of rights can lead to a dangerous despising of them. And when I use that term despising, I'm speaking in the biblical sense and and not the, the common sense of overtly hating something, but rather of just showing little interest or care about something. Showing such little interest or care that it appears to be hated or treated with contempt, though it might not even be deliberately thought about in that way. One of the most valuable treasures that we possess as believers is the biblical understanding of the work of grace in our salvation. It's a precious, it's a precious thing, beloved, that can be taken for granted and can be despised or undervalued. Paul says of our redemption in Christ, and this is Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Ephesians 2, uh, excuse me, beginning in verse 8 and reading through to verse 8. Beginning in verse 4 and reading through to verse 8. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, very sadly, in recent years, within Reformed circles, there's been a temptation to tinker with this great doctrine and to place it by that tinkering in jeopardy. The efforts to adjust and rework this truth are nothing new in one sense. It's always been a temptation. It's been the object of this sort of effort in the past and uh, sometimes those who have despised it have had great success in their efforts to damage it and it will continue to be threatened in the future. <coughs> Excuse me, there was a period when it was all but obliterated and replaced with a superstitious, enslaving works mentality. But God used the Protestant Reformation to restore this blessed truth to its proper place in the church, and anyone who has any idea any realistic idea of the state of Christianity in the years when it was obscured and before it was restored 
understands just how invaluable it is to the glory of God and the peace of mind of the believer, as well as how dangerous it is to place it in any kind of jeopardy with new perspectives or with interpretations or with philosophical musings. The truth is, if you go back 800 years, say, to 1221, you will find people trying to be Christians and living like slaves under the notion that one can only be justified and finally saved by his or her works. Only the very wealthy or the very holiest of the highest of clergy could expect to be with Christ in heaven. And precious few of them. That was the reality. All the rest were taught by the church that they were bound to slog through this life in an effort to accumulate a few good works, not to end their suffering, but to perhaps shorten it a wee bit as they endured the painful disciplines of purgatory. And I can tell you with confidence that there's not a person in this room today who would have been considered qualified to access heaven at death 800 years ago. None of you are wealthy enough. None of you are high enough officers in the church as it was envisioned at that time to have any hope of heaven. None of us just would not be a part of our lives. Before every one of you would be first an endless demand of good works in this life. And then an incalculable number of years of suffering and purgatory before you might have any real hope of entering at least limbo, which is the highest place in purgatory, before you come to heaven. Meanwhile, the very wealthy could live the most sinful and cruel lives imaginable, treating those around them with hatred and with contempt, making their lives miserable, but by making a large donation to the church on his or her deathbed, they could escape all accountability by that final good work. If you could pay enough, give enough to the church, at that last minute, just before you took that last gasp, all was forgiven and heaven was your reward for that good work. This shift away from the evangelical truth of the New Testament didn't just suddenly spring up, but it was the result of a slow erosion, born in part out of a contempt for the truth and an undervaluing of the gospel message. All of this stemmed from confusion and from ignorance, and in some cases, the deliberate distortion of God's word. That is, the Bible's teaching about salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. 
and the place of good works in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible teaches, beloved, as our confession of faith states, that good works are, first of all, only those things which God has commanded in his word. Only what we find declared to be good works in the Bible. And not such things as men may devise or imagine without any warrant from heaven, but just sort of devise on their own. In the book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, we read, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We want to know what good works are. Here they are succinctly stated for us in this prophecy. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for making his commandments of no effect by their own traditions and teachings as the doctrine of commandments. And they were nothing more than the commandments of men. He does that in Matthew chapter 15. To paraphrase the second paragraph in our confession on good works. These works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and the evidence of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers show their thankfulness. They strengthen their assurance of their own faith. They build up and help their brethren by those good works. They adorn the profession of the gospel, it says, and they stop the mouths of adversaries and they glorify God. The confession also reminds us that we cannot, by our best works, merit the pardon of sin or gain eternal life at the hand of God. <coughs> we can't profit or in some way satisfy the great debt created by our sins by some good action that we do. Because when we do what's required of us in the word of God, when we do what God calls on us to do, we've only done our duty and nothing more. There's no profit in it. There's no gain in it. We've just done what the scripture calls on us to do. In addition, when you and I do manage to do some good work, it is the result of the Holy Spirit working in us. It doesn't add any merit to us. It only gives glory to God. And lastly, in in this sense, any good work undertaken by sinful men and women only find its acceptance with God in Jesus Christ alone. So there's no merit to be gained by it. It's acceptable in God's sight only through Christ. Now having said all that and sort of laid the groundwork of good works, There is an aim and purpose in every good work that the believer undertakes in Christ's name that is mentioned in this uh, biblical analysis in our confession uh, just generally and only in the most broad terms. And it's in the statement that Loving in deed and in truth and maintaining good works adorns the profession of the gospel. And I wish more were said there. I'm not in any way disparaging the 
uh, Westminster divines by saying that. But I wish more was said about that subject. I want to go back so that we can go forward. Because I believe that understanding this aim keeps the doctrine of good works free from many of the errors that have been used to try to obscure it. So I want to go back to our theme here and move forward from there. So if you want to, you can turn your Bible back to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. And we've been looking here at exactly what is intended when the scripture says there, little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed or in deeds and in truth. Now, you know that your aim and purpose in doing this is not to save your souls. And hopefully we've made that clear here in our introductory thoughts. Um, Saving your soul is something only Jesus can do. And your salvation is a matter of God's grace to you and me in him. And there is redemption under no other name. And there's nothing that we can do by our works to justify ourselves and to gain redemption. So what then are you doing when you practice good works? What is the truth about what you're doing when you love as Christ commands? Well, first of all, and fundamentally, you're glorifying God by those works. They, they glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says there, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A light that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And glorify your Father in heaven. So that's fundamentally what we're doing when we're we're practicing those good works. When we're loving in deed and in truth. But you're also helping others in one way or another. Part of good works is, is helping people. But what is what we might call the great aim? in regard to that person to whom you're showing love in Christ's name. And I would submit that it's to show them the love of Christ with the prayer that seeing that love coming through you, he or she might, if an unbeliever lost in sin, look to Christ for the salvation of of his or her soul. In other words, isn't your aim in loving in word and deed evangelical in character? It needs to be, beloved. It ought to be evangelical in character. (coughs) Excuse me. When good works degenerate into the means of self-justification or even sanctification, there is a dynamic shift 
And those good works now become about me. And no longer about Christ and the need of others. They no longer point to Christ and his love, his mercy and his saving grace. But they now point to me and what a good person I am. And the credit or the merit that I've earned. And the goodwill I'm now due and owed from God and mankind. Look, I'm justifying myself by my good works. I'm sanctifying myself by my good works. So look at me. I am a better person. I'm a good person. Because I'm practicing good works. And the attention is all drawn down from God and from Christ and focused on me as I, as I boast in my good works. That's not the aim and the purpose of good works for the believer. Our aim and purpose is evangelical. We want that person to see through the love we're showing them, the love of Christ, so that they will call upon the name of Christ for the redemption and salvation of their souls for the eternal peace and for the glory of God. And among the brethren, those who are in Christ, is it not to convey to them the love of Christ so as to strengthen and encourage them in their love for him? If among my brethren... I do good deeds, loving good deeds, is in my aim and purpose, not that you'll look upon me and say, isn't he such a good person, but that you'll look to Christ and say, thank God for ministering to me through this person, through this man, through this woman, through this child. Look how God has blessed me in and through them. Isn't it to strengthen the hands which hang down and the, the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed? Isn't that the aim? Is it not the pursuing of peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Looking carefully lest any fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up cause trouble and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Aren't we ministering to one another in order to encourage one another in our faith? When good works in the service of one another cease to be about Christ and his love, they become about me and how kind and how useful I am and how I'm a little better than others, And they lead inevitably to the Pharisee's prayer, don't they? God, I I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I do good things for people. As we begin, beloved, to flesh out and, and to take a fresh look at ministry through the church. We must have this in the forefront of all of our efforts. Everything we do, whether it's mentoring one another or those outside of the church, 
whether it's providing tangible help to the people in need, or whether it's ministering to the students across the street or the students at Heritage, however we are reaching out, our aim must be first and foremost evangelical in nature. We're looking for the souls of men and women and children. You and I, beloved, possess a treasure unlike anything else in this world. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who believe in the gospel you know have their sins forgiven. They find peace and communion with God. They find purpose in life and are relieved of many of the frustrations that plague this life from understanding trials and sorrows to knowing that in the end justice will prevail at the hands of a holy and a wise and a good judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we possess this treasure and the aim and the purpose of our good works ought to be to share that treasure with others, to make that treasure known to others through putting their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When John sent two of his disciples to find out from Jesus if he was indeed the promised one, Jesus answered him by describing the character of his ministry. And he said, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, that lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, The poor have the gospel preached to them. Paul told the Philippians that believers are to shine as lights in this world in the darkness created by the wickedness and perverseness of each generation. And he ended by saying, holding fast the word of life. We're venturing out, beloved, in every phase of ministry to either find or to encourage the elect for Christ's sake. To either bring to them the gospel or to encourage them in it if they're already disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not seeking to justify ourselves. We're not seeking to gain merit for ourselves. We believe that we're saved by grace alone. And if by grace, Paul says in Romans eleven six, 6, it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. We're not even, beloved, primarily trying to redeem our culture. Though that often follows from believers going out and doing good works in Christ's name. But that's not our main goal. We consider the redemption of the soul far more important than the culture in general. We consider the redemption of a soul far more important than the redemption of a culture in general. Because the redemption of souls is costly. We live in a world that you know is cursed by sin. And as a result, beloved, corruption, selfishness, even violence are all a part of this existence. The Bible says that the only thing that keeps this world from being carried down into a self-consuming darkness 
is the word and the grace of God. Once he withdraws his restraining hand, which keeps things in check right now for the elect's sake, things will quickly degenerate into the way they were in the days of Noah. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 24, the prophet says this in the name of the Lord. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. It might indeed, says uh, Matthew Henry, this passage, refer to some particular country. But it should seem designed to speak what often happens to many countries, and will do while the world stands. And what may, we know not how soon, happen to our own country? And what is the general character of all earthly things? They're empty of all solid comfort and satisfaction. A little things make them, makes them waste. We often see numerous families and plentiful estates utterly emptied and utterly spoiled by one judgment or other, or perhaps only by a gradual and insensible decay. Sin has turned the earth upside down. The earth has become quite a different thing to man from what it was when God made it to be his habitation. The whole world languishes and fades away as hastening towards a dissolution. It is at the best like a flower which withers in the hands of those that please themselves too much with it. Paul says in Romans 8 that the present earth is under the bondage of corruption and groaning to be delivered. Not by mankind, not by mankind, but by God himself. Now don't misunderstand, any society will be blessed by the presence of God's people in it. But it will never become a redeemed heaven on earth. It won't happen, beloved. Our ultimate goal is not to rescue human culture and society, but lives, <coughs> the souls of men and women and children for Christ's sake. That's our goal. We're not reaching out hoping to change the world. We're reaching out hoping to win souls. Now that may result in improvement in the social environment. That might be the end result. But it won't bring an end to tears and sorrow and death and crying and pain in this world. Because that can only be found in the new heaven and the new earth, which is created in righteousness and is gained by saving faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Bishop Lavington, who was a British uh, um, Anglican bishop, said, 
We have long been endeavoring to reform the nation by moral preaching. He was saying this in the 1800s. We have long been endeavoring to reform the nation by moral preaching. By telling people what you're doing is wrong and you need to do what's right. He says we have long been doing that with what effect? None. We must change our voice. We must preach Christ and him crucified. Nothing but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't know how it could be any better said. We're not trying to make ourselves envied or admired. We're not egomaniacs. We're not trying to inflate our own ego. John 5.44, Jesus said, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? We're not seeking to honor each other. In Philippians 2, Paul says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're going forth continually, bearing precious seed, seed for sowing, believing that we will doubtless come again with rejoicing and bearing precious sheaves, the harvest of sowing. You know, the one thing that Jesus says to every one of the churches in those opening chapters of Revelation, the book of Revelation, the one thing he says to every church in that list and it's the only thing he says to everyone is this. I know your works. I know your works. And then he reveals that he knows the heart of them, the practice of them, the character of them all. Our ultimate goal in every loving deed we undertake in Christ's name should be to bring men and women here. By here I mean to the Lord's table, to Christ for saving, for healing, for restoring. Thomas Watson said he is the inestimable treasure, the treasure hidden in the field, the one pearl of great price. They are enriched forever that have him to be theirs. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our purpose as we reach out is to bring hurting, confused, thirsting, sick and dying men, women and children to Christ. We go out from here loving not in word or in tongue alone, but in deeds and in truth with that purpose in mind to bring hungering and suffering and confused men, women, and children to Christ. We're reaching out with just the Bible school here in a few weeks. What is our purpose there? Is it just to have a Bible school that we can have fun together and we can enjoy being together and be entertained and so on? That better not be our goal. That better not be what is behind that effort. What is behind that effort on every level needs to be this matter. 
this evangelical matter, winning the souls of children for Christ and outside of the church, reaching out and and presenting Christ to them for their eternal welfare, or in within the church taking our covenant children and pointing them to Christ for their strength and for their growing and for their maturity and for their blessing. That needs to be at the heart of it. And it changes the whole way you look at it. It's not just doing something for the fun of doing it. It's doing it with this goal in mind. We are to love as Christ loves, not in word, not, not in tongue alone, but in deeds and in truth. With that aim at the heart. How solid, substantial, handsome, and glorious. How truly Christ reconciles hearts, makes peace by the blood of his cross, and is the one mediator between God and man. How adorning, how preserving, how healing, how strengthening, how enriching, and how ennobling he is. His virtue is. And that's where we want to bring them. Not in to see us, but in to see Christ. And all that you hear from here forward about showing love to others and the different ways that we hope to be able to do it, you should hear with the understanding that our aim is primarily evangelical. And that, as Guthrie says, the gospel is not an offer, but the power of God and the salvation to these persons whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. They're the ones we're seeking. They're the ones we're after. They're the ones we want to do these good works before so that they will see and hear of the love of Christ for them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that this may indeed be our aim and our purpose. That, Lord, even here this morning, we might all sit back and say, What is our design? What is our aim? What is our purpose in loving, not just in words and in tongue, but in deeds and in truth? And Lord, understand the true character of that purpose. Because you have commanded us to preach the gospel to every creature. And Lord, we pray that that's what we will be doing in everything we undertake to do. Whether it's Bible school, whether it's mentoring others, whether it's ministering to the young people across the street, whether it's reaching out through missions, whatever it is, Lord. We pray that this might be at the heart and the center of it all. For your glory, for the blessing of others. And Lord, for the contentment of our own hearts. Lord, if in any way we have lost sight of this, we pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, that you would reset our hearts afresh as we think about what it means to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone who's here this morning or who is watching this morning or at some other time, who doesn't know Christ. I pray, Father, that uh, they would make it known. Lord, uh, we want all to know and to hear of this great Savior and the gospel of salvation. 
And we pray, Lord, that it would be heard from here in everything we do. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.